Throughout the season of Lent, we have been slowly making our way towards Jerusalem with Jesus, that Jesus is on a collision course to confront religious and political forces in the holy city that will conspire against him. We've been following Jesus as he's gone on this journey through the Gospel of Luke. It's a long journey in Luke, almost 10 chapters long. And next week, that journey will end as we enter into Jerusalem with a parade and a lot of fanfare and a Sunday that we've come to know as Palm Sunday. And so this is the last stop, not only for us in the season of Lent before we enter the events of Holy Week, but it's the last stop for Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is passing through Jericho, Luke says. Jericho was a big city. Herod had a a palace there, and it was a major center for taxation in that region. And in Jericho, there was a a man named Zacchaeus, whose name is as much fun to say as the children's song about him. You know it, don't you, if you grew up in the church? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And Diane's looking at me like, why didn't you just sing it? In this major city, with its taxation headquarters, Zacchaeus was the guy. Luke says he was the chief tax collector. Tax collectors were local Jewish folks who collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government. They were incredibly corrupt and unjust because they not only collected what was required by law, but they also took a little more and they pocketed it and they became exceptionally wealthy that way. When John the baptizer is down at the Jordan River preparing folks for the arrival of Jesus, there is a group of tax collectors down there, and they say to John, how should we prepare ourselves for the arrival of Jesus? And he says, don't take more than is required. Now, I don't know how many of those tax collectors went back to their work and did what John commanded of them, but Zacchaeus must not have been one of them. He was more than just the average tax collector. He was the chief tax collector a Jewish aristocrat who earned the residuals from what everyone under him earned. Rome's unjust tax system allowed for the confiscation of property so that people like Zacchaeus could then lease it out and enforce enslaved people to work on it, which would make him even wealthier. He was the representation of corporate greed. He was an institutional robber and an officially sanctioned gangster. He was exceptionally wealthy. His position allowed him a nice corner office with a view, a large mansion somewhere in the middle of town. He had beautiful clothes, drove an expensive car, had fine jewelry. His hair was always in the right place. He looked the part. But his lavish lifestyle came at a price. Tax collectors, much less chief tax collectors, were among the most despised groups that lived in the area where Jesus ministered. And it's not that hard for us to imagine, right? We're getting closer and closer to tax day, although that's been moved back by a month I just found out this week. But we are annoyed, we're frustrated when we have to figure out what we owe the government. But despite all of that, IRS agents are not necessarily the social pariahs that tax collectors were in Jesus' day. They were despised. They were viewed as people who had sold out. They sold their souls to the Roman government, an occupation force, just to get rich off the backs of their own people. They could not testify in Jewish court because they were viewed as inherently dishonest. 
They were excommunicated both from the local synagogue and the temple in Jerusalem because they were viewed as unclean. So why would Zacchaeus choose this life for himself? It could be as simple as the fact that he saw the opportunity for wealth and power and he couldn't pass it up. But that strikes me as a a secondary response and not the primary cause for decision-making. Why would someone choose a profession that would ostracize you so completely from your own people? Perhaps Zacchaeus had always been an outcast. He was a wee little man after all. Was he bullied as a child because of his height, pushed around on the playground, picked last for kickball, called horrible names? Now, of course, there's no way for me to know his history. But what I do know is that often people respond out of their own pain. Treat someone like an outcast long enough, and that's what they'll become. Dehumanize somebody, and they'll likely turn around and do that to others. And Zacchaeus caused so much pain and so much sorrow with his life. How many children in Jericho went to bed hungry at night because Zacchaeus had taxed them so heavily that the parents couldn't afford to put food on the table? How many homes were in foreclosure? In the story just before the one that just before this story, Jesus meets a blind man in Jericho crying out for mercy. Was he another one of Zacchaeus's victims? Something tells me that this isn't what Zacchaeus wanted for his life. Because when he hears that Jesus is coming to town, he goes looking for him. He climbs up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And let's not miss the humor of this moment. Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of Jericho, in his long flowing robes, his Armani suit, climbing up a tree to catch a glimpse of this homeless rabbi from Nazareth. Imagine the looks on the faces of the people as they see this rich and dignified man acting in such an undignified manner, his his robes tearing as he scurries up the tree. What exactly was he looking for? What was he hoping to see? He had no doubt heard that Jesus was a rabbi who had no problem sitting around a table with people like him. Was he looking for redemption or was he just curious? We don't know what he was looking for, but what did happen, I think, was bigger than he had ever hoped would happen. Luke tells us that Jesus was passing through Jericho, meaning he wasn't planning on stopping and staying. And so as he's walking along, he looks up and sees Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of Jericho, clinging to the branch of a sycamore tree. And I wonder if a huge smile came across Jesus' face or if he let out a big laugh at this sight. Because people did all sorts of bold and outlandish things to get Jesus' attention, right? Think back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is teaching in, his, in Peter's mother-in-law's house and the crowds have pressed in on him and there come four friends carrying their paralyzed friend. And they can't get to Jesus because of the crowds and so they climb up to the roof and they literally tear the roof off the house to lower their friend down to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't ignore them, but commends their faith. Or think about 
Jesus on his way to the the house of Jairus, the the synagogue leader. His daughter is sick and she needs healing. And and as they're walking along, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she presses her way through the crowd and grabs onto Jesus' cloak and she's healed. And Jesus stops the whole procession to commend her for her faith. I really hope the sight of this tax collector in a tree made Jesus laugh. He says to him, come on down. I must stay at your house today. Jesus, just passing through Jericho, stops the whole procession so he can go and be the guest of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. He's going to enter his home and share a meal with him, gather together around the table with him. And the people begin to grumble. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was criticized heavily for who he shared meals with. Why does he eat with tax collectors and other sinners? People whisper with an earshot of him. One scholar writes, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship in the culture that Jesus lived in. They thought of meals in a dramatically different way than we do. Mealtime for us, especially in our busy and chaotic culture, is often rushed. We eat most of the time because we need to nourish our bodies. But in first century Palestine, where Jesus lived and ministered, sharing a meal with someone was richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Even everyday meals, not just your special occasion ones, but your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, were incredibly complex events in which social values, boundaries, and hierarchies were reinforced. Often it was your extended family that you ate with. Gathering together around the table was a a way of sensing that you were an integral part of the group. Beyond the family, you tended to only eat with people who were in your own social class. Meals were a way of reinforcing social stratification. And so if someone was estranged from the group, The way of opening the door to forgiveness and reconciliation was to invite them around the table. Religiously, the Pharisees viewed the tables of the home as surrogates for the Lord's altar in the temple, and they sought to maintain the purity of the tables in the home. For them, eating with someone denoted acceptance and approval of that person. Someone who transgressed these boundaries was viewed as an enemy of social stability. And somewhere near the top of the list of people you didn't eat with were tax collectors. And who is Jesus eating with but the chief tax collector of Jericho? Is it no wonder then that people began to grumble? Is it any wonder that Jesus was viewed as an enemy of the social stability if he ate with people like Zacchaeus? Because Jesus is communicating something very blatant and something very radical just by his actions. By going and sitting at Zacchaeus' table, he is communicating in a profound way that Zacchaeus is accepted, that he is loved, and that he is a part of the community. He is opening the door to forgiveness and reconciliation for Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus doesn't miss the message. To share a meal with Jesus, to join him at his table, is never simply a private affair. We may experience Jesus in deeply individual and personal ways, 
but it always has implications beyond just ourselves. There's a reason why we call it communion. It's because we have communion with Christ and with one another. Zacchaeus, either out of his own pain or out of his own sense of greed, destroyed the lives of his people. He now turns towards them as a neighbor. He acts with love and compassion and justice. Rising from that meal with Jesus, he breaks that cycle of enmity and begins that hard work of reconciliation. He commits to giving half of his wealth to the poor, and if he's cheated anyone, and certainly Zacchaeus did, he will pay back four times the amount. A tax collector giving back the money he took in taxes? Now that had to be an even greater sight than him climbing up that sycamore tree. The text doesn't say, but I have to believe that there is no way that Zacchaeus could go back to living as a tax collector. I have to imagine he resigned his post and began a new life. He lived in a new way in Jericho. That welcome of Jesus, the love, justice, and mercy found around his table extended outwards from that one moment in time. And I really hope that Zacchaeus found his way to other tables. That he was able to put into practice what he had experienced from Christ. I hope that the table became a symbol for his own life, where he would welcome outcasts just as he himself had once been an outcast. I hope that wherever Zacchaeus went, he broke down social boundaries just as Jesus did and extended gracious hospitality and welcome to others. The central symbol of Jesus' ministry was the table. The story with Zacchaeus is something that Jesus did all the time. Around the tables of Galilee and Judea, Jesus practiced radical and inclusive fellowship and welcomed the, the poor, the outcast, sinners, the marginalized, the forgotten, those that nobody loves. It was the most important tool he had in his toolbox for upending social norms and expectations and inviting others into life with God. It was the most important symbol he had for demonstrating the kingdom of God. And he showed us that there is a place for everyone, even the chief outcast among outcasts, Zacchaeus. No one is beyond hope, and around the table, love and reconciliation take place. It's actions like these that led Jesus to the cross. As we get closer and closer to the cross, keep in mind that it was the company that Jesus kept that led him there. Upending social norms and expectations will get you crucified. Wherever someone says or tries to say that there is no room, whenever someone tries to build a barrier around Christ's table and life with God, we as his followers tear it down and from its remains we build a bigger table. We build bigger tables where there is more than enough room for everybody. Even with Jerusalem looming on the horizon, even when he knows the company he will keep will end in his death, Jesus will not stop welcoming folks around the table. Jesus can't stop and won't stop demonstrating radical and inclusive welcome. It doesn't matter who they are because no one is excluded. He makes a place for all and includes all in his fellowship. The late author Rachel Held Evans once wrote, 
The gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down walls, throwing open the doors, and shouting, Welcome! There is bread and wine. Come, eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. This is a kingdom for the hungry. That central symbol of Jesus' ministry empowers us and enables us to continue on in being a caring community that is inclusive in our welcome. That central symbol of the table is the demonstration of the radical and inclusive welcome of Jesus. And our calling is to extend that welcome outwards into our communities. Because whenever we gather at the table, even on Sundays where we're not celebrating communion, we are not only remembering Jesus, but it is an animating force that calls us to go out and break down the social boundaries of our own time. That whenever we ingest the bread and the cup, the body and blood of Christ, we ourselves become his body and blood, the very real presence of Christ in our world. And we become people who embody his radical and inclusive welcome, a welcome that upends social norms, a welcome that says there is a place for you here. And so we continue Jesus' ministry right here and right now in the ways that we extend his table, embodying his radical welcome, his gracious hospitality, his true equity, and his lasting reconciliation. Thanks be to God. Amen.